It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, and this is Great Debates in Fitness and in Health. We did this when we were down in Sydney. We were just in Australia for a couple of weeks for a few seminars down under, and we actually recorded this while we were in Sydney. Now, I do have an apology to make. We were using our little DJI lavalier mics, and I guess when I put the mic on Austin, I turned off the recording. So I actually pulled the audio from my mic for Austin, and so it is not great audio. It is passable audio when Austin talks, but I think what he's saying is so important that I wanted to boost the levels, and you know, you guys are going to hear me do uh, some swallowing noises and breathing and stuff here and there. I tried to eliminate that as much as possible. It's just not perfect audio. Again, it's passable, and if you make it through this, I promise you there's something good coming on Friday, brand new podcast going to release for you guys, so excited about that. But uh, yeah, this is a number of questions that you guys submitted that we debated, and I think it's good enough to release despite not having pristine audio. I really wish at some point we're completely past any audio gremlins, but you know, I think with the amount of traveling that we do and our busy schedules, sometimes it can be tough. And so I appreciate you guys sticking with us. Again, this is episode 273, Great Debates in Fitness and in Health, number three. All right, I'm done talking. Let's get into the podcast. The idea here is we take 10 uh, debatable topics within fitness and health, and one of us is for, or in the, replies in the affirmative, and the other uh, argues against it. Now, a lot of these things we actually don't disagree on in real life, but it allows us to sort of play both sides and uh, maybe answer some additional questions that you may have about these particular topics. Our first question, symmetry, should asymmetries in strength, muscle size, and technique be corrected? What say you? Oh, you want me first? Yeah, oh, also, just for the format. So it's a four minutes, four minutes per question, two minutes uh, reply, uh, that the person who starts gets to argue, and then two minutes for the rebuttal. Usually there'll be some discussion afterwards, but we're going to try to limit these uh, responses to you know, two minutes at a time. Asymmetries in strength, I think there is a context in which they should be corrected, and I think mainly we think about those in terms of post-operative scenarios. Um, for example, our, our, our friend uh, Dr. Miles has talked about in the post-ACL rehab scenario where... Um, achieving more limb symmetry strength side to side actually seems to be predictive, beneficial for, for outcomes from a rehab standpoint. But outside of those scenarios, I'm not super aggressive about trying to make people strength similar on side to, side to side. I think that naturally we tend to have strength asymmetries and those are not necessarily of any concern um, in the vast majority of situations. With respect to muscle size, I similarly don't care about it unless it is a feature of your sport that you should care about. So if you're going to be a bodybuilder and you're going to go on stage, that's a criterion on which you're going to be judged. I have no expertise in, uh, in, the, in uh, the details of that, but outside of that, asymmetries in muscle size, side to side, are not something that I aggressively pursue and correct. And then finally, technique, I think there's a lot of, um, you know, in athletic pursuits, people over time, as they gain experience and practice, they tend to, you know, there's this term that's been thrown around, self-organization and, uh, of, of, their, of their technique, and a lot of people will inherently have some typically, you know, minor, sometimes even more, much more significant asymmetries. I think it's been observed, for example, with Usain Bolt's gait because he has a leg length discrepancy that it was not perfectly symmetrical. I had some teammates that I swam with over the years that had some objectively janky looking technique while they're in the pool and it worked quite well for them and they did not uh, seem to suffer Ill, Ill effects from it. So for the vast majority of folks in terms of uh, technical asymmetries, particularly in the more trained scenario, I don't tend to aggressively correct those unless they themselves tend to result in what would seem to be performance limitations in the, in the task that is uh, the person's goal to improve. So I think there are you know, individual scenarios, but I don't think that broadly speaking that we should just correct these across the board, yes or no, but that's my position on each one of those individual questions. So I guess then I will have to take the opposite. So your response was for asymmetries side to side strength wise, that they can be useful in predicting outcomes post-operatively for like return to sport injury risk. I would then just have to devolve into challenging the data and then say that it's less generalizable to sports where it hasn't been directly studied, which is exactly how I feel. I think it is a reasonable sort of extrapolation of the data. I think it's mostly in soccer and rugby, as I recall. It might be in football as well. but And that's particularly with like hamstring uh, uh, asymmetry uh, with respect to strength and post-op ACL, I believe. So that's one particular procedure, one particular muscle asymmetry in a handful of similar-ish sports. 
And so I don't know that we can extrapolate that to all sports and certainly in like return to general activity rather than team sports. For muscle size, uh, again, I, your take was that it might be a feature of a sport rather than a bug. And so then I would have to say that I would correct muscle size. Um, but I think it's mostly interesting that we're talking about side to side rather than just like, how about agonist to antagonist, for example? Oh, your biceps are much stronger than your triceps or triceps are much stronger than your biceps. And I think when you go into the weeds there, then you start to realize like, well, the actual like force production potential for a specific muscle is related to not only how much like volume of muscle is packed into a given muscle group, but also its mechanical advantage in a particular position. And then that argument falls apart. So I just would reject that that's a thing. <laughs> I think and just say it's an invalid question. And the third thing would be technique. And I don't know what asymmetric technique is. I assume what people mean is like technique variability. But I think when, you, when we actually look at technique and people moving in three-dimensional space, even in highly trained individuals, we know that there is variation in all of those planes. Rep to rep variability and even elite level uh, weightlifters and powerlifters using 70% of their 1RM they move in all different planes. And so, again, I think variability in that particular and asymmetry in that particular uh, context is, again, a feature, not a bug. We just have many different viable strategies to accomplishing a task. And I would only start going towards correction if it was causing some sort of inefficiency that I think I could better manage. But some inefficiency you might see might actually be a person's preferred style, in which case I would reject that. We're not off to a great start. All right, question number two. Should programming change based on being in a caloric deficit, maintenance, or surplus? Why are these multiple questions? <laughs> I would just, okay, so I'm going to respond in the negative. I'll take the lead on this. Uh, no, I don't think programming should change based purely on energy balance. I think rather the person's goals, preferences, and current fitness levels should be the overall determinants of their program constituents and layout. So as far as how many days they're training, so frequency the average intensity, uh, the modes, the type of training that they're doing, and uh, overall volume, and then subsequently training load. That'll all be determined by the person's current fitness levels, preferences, and goals. And those are kind of, they may like coincide with various changes in the energy balance, meaning that somebody might prefer a less maximally strength-focused training block while they're trying to lose weight, but that doesn't have to be that way. It's mostly just a personal preference kind of thing. People cut weight for uh, strength sports, barbell sports, powerlifting, Olympic weightlifting, um, to fit into a weight class, for example, and can continue to make gains that way. People can uh, gain weight on a hypertrophy focus block, you know, not necessarily chasing maximal strength improvements. Um, could be an endurance focus block with, you know, weight management uh, uh, independent to the person's particular goals. So no, I would not change programming based on a, partic on a particular energy balance one way or the other. Although again, some people do kind of organize themselves and their goals along with uh, certain programming preferences, uh, but I don't think it's necessary. Yeah, so as is tradition in these uh, exercises, sometimes we have to stretch ourselves to adopt a, a, a contrary position. And so I think the way that I'm going to have to do that is by viewing this through the lens of like what is likely to be necessary at the extremes. And so if somebody, for example, um, transitions from a maintenance or a surplus into an extreme or like a very aggressive calorie deficit, I'm imagining what would I do if I was, you know, running my preferred mode of training, which tends to be on the least moderate to higher volume side of things. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, whether it was for a, a cut into a meat or um, if I got horrifically sick and I wasn't really able to take in any, any meaningful amount of calorie intake and aggressively went into a substantial calorie deficit, I would, I could envision myself going into the gym and training in such a scenario and saying, probably going to pull back on my usual preferred dosage of training volume today. Well, you know, I, I would, I would be more, I would be more likely to want to pull back on loading and try to maintain as much of the training volume as I could. Yeah. Uh, so, if you if you view a change in intensity as a programming change, then you could argue it. And I would probably, you know, depending on the severity of such a calorie deficit, I would also likely end up pulling back on the, on the training volume. But again, that's like in a particularly severe scenario. I think that's not something I've generalized to people who are saying I'm I'm doing a, a, a routine run of the mill quote unquote diet or cut or whatever the case is trying to lose some weight. That's not something that we would routinely or preemptively factor into somebody's program. Yeah, and more importantly, those sort of uh, experiences, so feeling run down, feeling ill or whatever, it's not a function of the energy balance. That's more of like a co-occurring, like an artifact, if you will. You can get stronger on an energy deficit. You can gain, most people will be able to gain some level of muscle mass on an energy deficit or maintenance. Yes, you're likely to gain more with a higher energy intake, but you know, there are no things that are like black and white here. It's all kind of a spectrum, so. All right, 
Next question. Should everyone be taking creatine, Dr. Baraki? Everyone. Um, I'm going to take the negative position here and say no. Uh, I think that, you know, if I, if I could uh, anticipate, as we've said, my, my colleague's position on that, <laughs> it'd be through the lens of just viewing, you know, absolute benefits versus absolute risks. And if you weigh those in a, in a, you know, a cold calculus kind of way and saying, well, one is greater than the other, so therefore the answer is yes. I think that is one way to view things, but that is, um, I don't know, pretty removed from the context of dealing with actual humans in the world who may have different preferences and values and be willing to do more or less things as it related to their health or their performance. I mean, if you think about there are people who nerd out on all of these, whether it be our podcast and, and, and many other podcasts, they want like every little minor detail of thing they could do for their training or their awesome. health or something like that. And there's a lot of people who are like, that's insane. I don't care enough. To yep. do that, no matter what purported you know absolute benefit I might get from this. So, are there you know medical benefits um, and performance benefits that somebody, on average, based on the existing data, might be likely to gain by taking creatine, something like creatine monohydrate? Sure. Um, is that necessarily going to outweigh the risks, both biological medical risks, but also like the costs, the downsides, the effort, the time, the money, whatever? It might not be worth it to an individual person. So I think that's you know it, 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 you're going to have a hard time getting me to agree to something where it's like, should everyone do yeah. anything? <laughs> yeah. You know, I think so that's going to be my position. If I'm forced to take the position that everybody without fail should consume creatine, I would have to really stretch the data on non-performance related outcomes, non-physical performance related outcomes, um, particularly like cognitive benefits and, and such, without divulging that the evidence there is not great as far as like people taking creatine, improving some sort of clinically valid metric of cognitive performance. People say, oh, it improves your brain function. It's like, what specifically are you talking about? And how big is that effect? And how reliably does that effect occur? And the data there is not great. It, you could say it's promising. That would be a charitable take on things. But I think that might be overselling kind of the evidence base. With respect to physical performance, particularly things like strength, cardiorespiratory performance, or whatever, yes, there's ample evidence showing that creatine can be beneficial. But it's not a panacea. It's not going to turn somebody into a never was into a world beater. There's a variable effect depending on the outcome that you're looking at and the individuals that you're looking at, but it's worth a little something that you should couch within the risk of taking any sort of dietary supplement as well. 20 to 30% at least of all supplements are contaminated. Another substantial portion of supplements are mislabeled. And so there are problems there. So you wanna make sure that your supplements are CGMP accredited, so good manufacturing practices, they're adherent to that. They are third party tested to make sure there's no contaminants that what's on the label is actually there. Um, and then you'd want to take somewhere between three to five grams per day on most days. Now, the data on how many people uh, creatine ends up being effective for is also not great. There's effectively like one study kind of looking at this and it's in a small group of people. I think it's 11 folks and like two thirds of folks had some sort of positive response to it. That's not really enough to hang your hat on there. So it's kind of unknown how many people it's going to actually work for. And further, even with respect to dosing, it's like you could load stuff initially and get like uh, some sort of benefit, but it does increase the risk of GI-related side effects. There's some studies where they dose it every other day. That seems to increase the risk of being a non-responder compared to taking it every day. So there's still some unknowns, despite many people saying creatine is the most well-studied supplement, you know, in the game. And it's like, well, that may be true, but there's still holes in what we know about this. And so if I'm forced to take this position that everybody should take in creatine, my response would be like, look, even if you don't take supplemental creatine, you're probably taking it in dietarily most of the time. And so to that end, yes, I don't know that I could say that everybody should take dietary creatine, supplemental creatine. I also have a podcast about creatine, hair loss, its effects, mechanisms, stuff like that. I think it's episode 250, something like that. So we'll link that in the description and I can go off on creatine. All right, next question. Ooh, this is gonna get some hate. Yeah, Miss George, George is triggered already. <laughs> Should the government restrict the food industry's ability to produce hyperpalatable slash ultra processed foods? Mm. Austin, what do you? Uh, yeah, I'm gonna say no here for uh -huh. a few reasons. Um, I think that this is a really thorny kind of proposition. The first issue that I would take is just a, one of definitions. I think that there's actually been, you know, the idea, the concept of an ultra processed food was like a major hot topic within the past, I don't know, two years. Mm -hmm. I would say it really blew up people looking at like the NOVA classification and all these other systems. 
which uh, appear to be quite flawed in a variety of ways. We, we did a podcast on the topic, and, and some of our other friends and colleagues in this space have as well. And so I think just in terms of definitions, you're likely to end up running into um, kind of unforeseen complications um, of regulating quote-unquote ultra-processed foods, which mm-hmm. sounds, I, I guess regulating them sounds something like something we might be on board with. Banning the ability to produce them um, is almost assuredly going to lead to unintended consequences um, yeah. just from a definitional standpoint. Similar with hyper-palatable, um, which means like it tastes good, but there's no universal hyper-palatable thing. Like, yeah. Different people find different things um, super palatable. If you want the best example, that's just like look across different cultures yeah. where there are certain, certain foods that are delicacies in another culture that if you try to present them to somebody who is from Missouri, they would vomit <laughs> on the spot. <laughs> Can't <laughs> confirm. <laughs> so just in terms of definitions, I think that's going to be tricky. Um, and then directly restricting the ability to produce food items, I think is also tricky. I, I think that we would be more so on board with some alternative method of regulation. This has been looked at in other countries, um, you know, sugar taxes, for example, in, in other countries and, and various other things on which I do not claim to have a great degree, um, you know, uh, level of, of expertise and, and knowledge on um, all the different options and their uh, differing efficacy and costs and benefits and things like that. But I do think there is a path for regulation, um, which is likely to improve population-wide health outcomes yep. that I would be more likely to get on board with rather than some kind of blanket restriction on whatever we're going to call hyperpalatable or processed foods, which to date have not been clearly, you know, enough defined for our satisfaction, I would say. Yeah, I think, so if I'm, now I'm forced to take the affirmative that we should restrict yeah. uh, all hyperpalatable uh, and ultra-processed foods. So I think from that perspective, I'd have to expand the definition of restrict to include uh, sort of some maybe uh, incentivization to not produce these foods or to limit their production and widespread ubiquity in the food environment. And so you could talk to maybe like a sugar tax, particularly on sugar sweetened beverages, which has varying degrees of success where it's been implemented before. You could also, uh, on the other side, incentivize minimally processed foods that are very satiating. The, The real problem here, the way I see it, is not just from a definition standpoint. That is a problem, but my major issue is gonna be food insecurity. Like if you do limit a lot of these foods that are technically ultra-processed by the NOVA classification and are very tasty, which again varies by culture and preferences, then there's going to be a substantial portion of the population who is now going to be have food insecurity, which is a major issue. I think that ultimately in the future, very processed foods are going to be heavily uh, sort of important to feeding the, the world's population. We just need to make them more health-promoting options rather than the foods that most people are probably referring to when they speak of hyperpalatable, ultra-processed foods, those are the ones with things of added sugar, added sodium, added fat, those that in general do not make you very full and have a tendency to have uh, folks over-consume calories. Yeah, reformulation campaigns, if those could be incentivized, I think we would also be down with that. There's yeah. interesting data on like, you know, salt substitution, potassium chloride for sodium chloride yep. data. I think they have a multi-center study in China that showed like reduced rates of cardiovascular outcomes and stroke just from like, yeah. changing the composition yeah. um, and incentivizing that might have some favorable health outcomes. Yeah, so I think if we could cull any sort of fears about food insecurity, uh, incentivize reformulation, and then also uh, potentially make buying minimally processed foods uh, a little bit easier for folks to for folks to do. I'd be in favor of all that, but outright like blanket hardcore restrictions, not only would be tough to implement and get people to vote for. I I actually don't know that it'd be ultimately successful. A lot of a lot of negative externalities would likely result from that. Okay. Do gains in strength take longer to develop than gains in cardiovascular endurance? Austin. Oh, do I get to pick this one? Okay, I will say, do strength gains on average take longer to develop than gains in cardiorespiratory endurance? Uh, I will take the negative on this. Um, and so for measuring strength as demonstrable improvements in things like one rep max, that would be a common test uh, to measure maximal strength and then Cardiorespiratory endurance would be like an improvement in VO2 max, time trial performance, something like that. On average, they're going to take about the same level of time. Of course, the individual who you're talking about in their current level of fitness and then the training intervention is going to play a role in like the average result. But where it's been tested, demonstrable improvements in strength seem to pop up in like three to four weeks on average, where they actually test people's one rep max at you know, intervals. 
Um, and similar, that's about the same for cardiovascular endurance as far as demonstrable improvements in VO2 max. Joel Friel, uh, Dr. Kogan, a number of other people kind of in the endurance space who are really geek out on like prescriptions for improving uh, cardiorespiratory endurance. They actually have people test, uh, have like a sort of testing period almost every month because people's heart rate zones will effectively change based on their sort of functional threshold heart rate. The, the heart rate on average they can sustain for like a 20 minute test or something um, and, and Kogan's field test, uh, for example. So I don't think that one happens faster than the other, all else being equal. The issue is that most of the time things aren't equal and so there's gonna be a little bit of difference, but on average, I think they take about the same amount of time to manifest. Yeah, I think we recognize where this question is coming from um, because there have been claims, for example, that strength gains are mediated by like structural adaptations, quote unquote, and cardiovascular endurance um, adaptations are you know more metabolic in nature. Chemicals, and that's incorrect. Sure, I think just yeah. off the bat, like yeah. the vast majority of. Uh, strength improvements are going to be neurologically mediated to sure. a point, and then obviously there can be you know contributions. But the structural um, component, insofar as you're generating myo, you know, muscle fibers that are adding to your strength potential, that does not happen particularly quickly. And so that's one way that I could come at this if I'm forced to, you know, take a con- some kind of contrary position is if we're looking at it in terms of structural. But then you're just looking at like hypertrophy, yeah, <laughs> yeah, not strength. So in general, I agree with you that. Um, that that is an incorrect kind of assumption that these things on average are um, likely to progress at a similar pace where you're likely to see differences is going to depend on, as you mentioned, people's baseline fitness and like prior uh, exercise activity, and then just looking at different tasks and what their limiters are. So for example, if I had somebody whose goal was to, you know, get the strongest that they could in a uh, snatch and compare that with like a cycle ergometer, like a seated bicycle, Mm -hmm. it's like, well, one is, substantially more limited by technique and their able their their ability to demonstrate improvement in strength is going to be probably slower on a snatch compared with improvements in you know cardiorespiratory fitness on a bike but this is like i'm stretching to find a way to disagree because otherwise um i do not think that that uh, traditional argument is correct and i think that on average these things uh, people tend to adapt pretty readily up front yeah and actually the other thing that the, the corollary that is sometimes derived from this i guess is that the decay of these things tends to also happen at different rates, such that uh, the decay in cardiorespiratory fitness is really, really relatively quick, as compared with the decay in in strength. And I don't know that that's actually necessarily true either. Correct. Yeah. I think that um, for people who have prioritized getting really, really strong, then you tend to retain a fair amount of strength, and maybe they have not developed very much cardiorespiratory fitness. Yeah. So when they try to do some cardiorespiratory fitness, it sucks feels bad, but as somebody who in my past life had developed an extremely high level of cardiorespiratory fitness, then it did not take very long outside of the pool before I like felt a difference, yeah. but then upon getting back in, readily adapted again. And I think we've experienced similar things when we have setbacks from strength training and we get back uh, to normal training, we tend to adapt pretty readily. And so I think that we have not noticed a substantial difference with one or the other, both either in rate of adaptation or in rate of detraining. Yeah. I mean, there are neurological structural and metabolic changes for both sort of outcomes the rate at which those things occur is going to again vary by the individual who's doing them and then also the training um i just i I have a hard time thinking that one is happening faster on average than the other or even decaying faster on average than the than the other it just uh, again is going to be highly variable based on the individual it'd be a very poor strategy to think that one is massively quicker to develop than the other outside of some sort of pre-existing knowledge so, for example, you could take this to a population level and say, oh, look, on average, people are far weaker relative uh, to their average cardiorespiratory endurance. And then you would say, well, because they're starting from an even lower level, maybe it's easier to get a little bit stronger. Or even just the fact that, like, if you test somebody's 1RM on something they've never done before, a few days later, they can improve on their 1RM just due to the skill sort of acquisition and neurological adaptation taking place Not faster. Yeah. yeah, and which might be easier to do than like, we're going to do a 20-minute time trial on a bike, and then three days later, you're going to do another one. Yeah. It's like, is it going to be better? I'd be more confident in saying that somebody's 1RM leg press is going to get better in three days than their 20-minute time trial, for sure. example. Sure. I guess if you had to do it. It's all made up. like that. It's... And comparing between people is not wise because different people are, quote-unquote, wired up differently for cardiorespiratory adaptations versus strength adaptations. Their metabolic makeup, their yep. you know, fiber types, all that other kind of stuff can come into play in terms of which they're going to tend to perform and adapt a little bit more readily to. 
Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of flexibility there as somebody who's gone from like super endurance realm to like strength realm. And vice versa. Reasonably yeah. well. If, for you. if you guys are super interested in like how quickly do strength gains decay or whatever, what happens when you stop training? We did a podcast on that. So like what happens when you stop lifting? I believe it's 258. I don't know. I'll link that, that podcast in the description below. All right. Next question. Are wearable tech's nocebo effects fine if it keeps one accountable, motivated, and consistent? Do I get to start this one or are you? Uh, I'll say, are they, are they fine if, if it keeps one accountable, motivated, and consistent? I guess I'll say yes, it's fine, but it's going to be highly variable on the individual. It's like, do fitness trackers on general wearable tech, on average, do they lead to better outcomes would be like a sort of larger question, a broader question. And I think that on average, the answer that I've come up with is no, but, with, but within average, there's like a distribution, right? Some people who prefer these things, they like the data, they maybe don't even, uh, the, the data isn't actionable for them, they just like it and otherwise are unaffected by it. It's great. Or even they are affected in a positive way. They see it and they're like, oh, I didn't get enough steps and enough activity or whatever, and that makes them more active. I think that's probably net benefit. But like population-wide, I don't think that wearable tech is likely to have a positive effect on participation in exercise, adherence to the you know, requisite volume of, of exercise, or like uh, actually improving sort of return on uh, investment from exercise. But it's, again, it's going to vary by the individual. And if an individual has a positive sort of you know, predisposition towards it, I'm fine with it. I just think you start getting into, I start getting a firmer opinion on things when there is this sort of like actionable metric, like a strain score, stress score, something like that, or your sleep was this, so don't train. And in general, I'm not in favor of those things. And I don't think that has a net positive effect. Yeah, that's kind of how I'm going to come at this in order to disagree and to say it's not fine. I, <laughs> I, you know, this is a scenario where I'd want to get to know the person a little bit in terms of how are they using this and how do they feel it is leading to them being more motivated and consistent. In mm -hmm. other words, what, what's really getting them excited you know, from this data? On one hand, there could be some kind of wearable tech that is functioning as like a logging type function if it's tracking their steps yeah, or yeah. their... You know their performance during a session like you know we tend to use heart rate monitors when we're doing our conditioning stuff and that's like you know in the moment we're adjusting our pace and stuff like that for it and then afterwards we have a log that includes this data logging like sure i'm fine with that but on the other hand the stuff that tends to be more tracking data on which you base training decisions preemptively i'm not and i think for a couple of reasons one of which is it tends to lead people to uh, in many situations focus on the wrong things or, or things that are not worth focusing on in the, in the bigger picture as far as how to actually make training decisions over time. It externalizes a process that should be, um, in many ways, uh, interoceptive, if we want to use a really fancy fancy term, yeah. you know, something where you're, you're getting a feel. Like if you talk to advanced athletes, uh, high-level performers in any sport, they have what they'll describe as like a, a, a feel for their body. You know, if I jumped in the pool, you know, during my years doing that, I could get a feel for where I was at that day, what was a sustainable pace, what was not, things were feeling good, not, and I could adjust things accordingly. And um, that, if I externalize that to have like a watch tell me that, mm -hmm. then the question is like, what's the watch basing this off of? Just because it seems high tech and, and you know, fancy data does not mean that it has accuracy, uh, reliability, validity, reproducibility. Yep. So there's so many errors, er potential for error in that. And then you could be basing like pretty important decisions. You could be letting a watch override your own kind of interoception, your own, your own body awareness, your own a level of performance day to day, just because a watch told you so. Yep. It's similar to when we talk about auto regulation in general, adjusting loading, RPE. It's like, well, the paper told me I had to squat, you know, 365 today, even though I'm like, dying under 320 but yeah, yeah. The, the program says it so i'm gonna do it it's like that is not intelligent training yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so this is just a higher tech version of like relying on flawed data to make decisions or focusing on the wrong thing focusing on a a, a, a whoop thing that tells you like no you shouldn't train today or you should do less today it's like well i feel fine though you know um or or vice versa so yeah. i'm less okay with this stuff if it is uh focusing on metrics that i don't think are worth focusing on, or people are using it to make preemptive decisions that could be made um, could be made in other ways. But just for a pure logging function, if that's what somebody feels helps keep them accountable, that's fine. Yeah, I think even if you go like more rudimentary, so like low tech, decidedly, it, what you're trying to do is come up with some sort of readiness score that predicts not only how you'll perform in the workout, but also what you should do within the workout. And I think 
everybody who's watching this, listening to this or whatever, has had a time where they've gone into the gym, for example, and not felt their best, but had a demonstrably best performance. They were able to PR, go up and wait, otherwise, something like that. Similarly, everyone's had another experience where they've gone to the gym feeling awesome and had a below average sort of performance. And it's kind of like, okay, so based on all of these sort of integrative things you're taking in to your own psyche, you've not been able to predict this accurately. What do you think this stuff that, you know, is on a smaller uh, sample size that are people who aren't you, what do you think they're able to do? And so far, we don't have like a good series of questionnaires, a composite score, uh, metric that otherwise tells you how you're going to do and what you should do. Um, I think the best tool that we have is probably like for resistance training, like how are your warmups moving and how do you feel overall? And so we have what we call like indicator weights for our main movement patterns, the squat, the press, a hinge pattern. And so like for me on a squat, I can pretty much tell you, and I think within like a 5% error bar, what I'm going to squat on a given day or my max potential squat on a given day when I squat somewhere north of 500, somewhere between 500 and 550 pounds. Mm -hmm. On a deadlift, it's somewhere between 585 and 600. I can tell you, oh, can I PR today? Or, you know, what's it going to be? And same thing on bench. It's like around 365. And that's just, that's an experience thing. And then also... Uh, not just experience lifting those weights, but experience of like, well, what happens next? Mm -hmm. So that's like my like AI that I've been able to internalize. Maybe we'll get there, but you know, if I had to pick something to measure, it would be like velocity of your last like warm up, and then I'd be able to like extrapolate that out with some degree of accuracy. Certainly more than what wearable tech can do at this time. I, and, and even if we did have velocity, I would still want some context for it in terms of talking to the person. Yeah, like how did it feel? How it, both yeah. how it felt, but like. Did you actually try as hard as you can? Sure, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. the velocity data assumes maximal volitional intent. So yep. there's, even, there's a potential error there too. If somebody is not trying to move the bar as fast as they can every time, then velocity data doesn't tell you anything. Yeah, just mailing it in. This podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Belts. At Pioneer Belts, they have belts for all applications. If you're interested on how belts work or how to choose a belt, check out our podcast episode number 219. Most people will do best with a four inch wide belt that's 10 millimeters thick, either single prong or lever, depending on the fastening mechanism that you prefer. Pioneer has industry exclusive micro adjustments on their lever belts for ease of use without tools. They also make custom belts to your specs, depending on what you want. Trusted by some of the world's strongest athletes, choose Pioneer for your weightlifting belts and accessories. Head to generalleathercraft.com and tell the Barbell Medicine sent you. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. After going to the gym, what's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? For me, I'd probably do some more reading or get outside of nature, maybe both. Whether we're talking about training, a dietary change, or just life, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you. Therapy can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it. Of course, therapy isn't a single thing per se, but working with a licensed therapist may be helpful for many folks to learn positive coping skills, how to set boundaries, and overall empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suit you, the individual. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash barbellpod today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash barbellpod for 10% off your first month. Will athletes become slower and, quote, unathletic if they become too strong? All right, hold on, before we get into that, what does it even mean to be athletic? <laughs> well, I used to have, we, we used, not we, but like, I think originally when I thought about this, like, what does it mean to be athletic or whatever? Invariably, I think you close your eyes, think about, all right, athletic, athlete, what does it mean? It's like, all right, participates in sport, likely explosive, powerful, springy, bouncy, you know, whatever, all this sorts of stuff, high skill, things of that nature. But that's for more like strength, power related sports, mm -hmm. things that are short duration. What about the marathon? Or that's a sport. They're obviously athletic within that sort of domain. And so I think you have to expand your definition of what does it mean to be athletic? I think in this particular question, they're meaning like, okay, again, short duration, uh, high velocity movements, likely with some sort of skill component. And so we can constrain this discussion to that, even though I don't think that that's correct. But okay, I started the last time. So do you think that people can become too strong that ultimately makes them slower and less athletic? Yeah, this will be an interesting one. I'm going to flip the coin and say I'm going to take the affirmative on this. Um, and, and I think I'm going to do that for... Come, I, there's a couple potential angles that you can come at it here. The main one, though, is that um, as with everything else, both health-related and also performance-related, 
there is going to be a point of diminishing returns in terms mm -hmm. of the added benefit to your sport of pursuing additional strength um, or really almost any adaptation outside of like what is the specific task of your sport, right? So uh, a powerlifter's performance is not going to go down because they got too strong because strength demonstration is, is that sport. But for, for other ones, there's going to be diminishing returns, particularly when you get to the point where you have to do more and more and more training mm -hmm. more and more strength training in order to keep getting stronger and that just in terms of like time effort recovery sustainability begins to detract from your ability to actually practice and train your specific sport to the extent that somebody wants to be an athlete in a particular sport and is able to either maintain or continue training progressing their sport specific tasks i am less you know, uh, uh, likely to, to feel that the strength is going to be a limiter. But I, for many of them, I still think that, th I, I think that that's like a somewhat uh, idealized or unrealistic scenario to expect that somebody's going to be able to like maintain all their sport specific practice and yet just like keep getting stronger mm -hmm. indefinitely. I think that's like a scenario where it's like theoretically possible, but practically not possible. Yeah. Um, if you were to take somebody who is a high level athlete, say they're like a, a track sprinter or something like that. And they're like, yeah. Uh, if you could keep doing all the sprint training and all the, all the hurdle work or whatever you're going to do on the track, and yet we're going to get your squat to 800 pounds. It's like, yeah, that's not, not going to happen without like a pretty substantial decrement in your performance on the track. So that's going to be my one way to come. So I'll have to respond in the negative that no, you cannot become too strong to become unathletic or move slower. And I think then if I have to argue that point, then the caveats are as follows. That one, it does not compromise training resources dedicated towards actually doing the sport-specific training and or recovering from the sport specific training and that whatever training volume that results in also still makes you stronger. <laughs> so again, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a theoretical sort of thing. Yeah. One maybe interesting like twist to this or turn is like there's gonna be a wide spectrum of sort of transference of maximal strength to sport, not only depending on the sport, but also the individual. Some like higher skilled individuals will need less sort of like strength and reserve than those who have maybe less skilled uh, skills at their disposal and so they'll have to actually have more strength in order to participate on uh, or play on the same level and so I think that there are going to be some people who might actually do better by getting even stronger than is necessary for their sport because that's the most that's the biggest lever they can pull uh, compared to improving their their skill set but I agree that it is unlikely for folks uh, who are participating in other non-barbell based sports to continually get stronger and stronger and stronger without at some running into a wall where it's like you don't have enough resources to do this amount of training. It goes back to this discussion I had about Olympic weightlifting. And I was, you know, somebody was like, well, should Olympic weightlifters bench press? And I'm like, I think at the beginning of their development, like getting generally strong, so a wide variety of different movement patterns, rep ranges, et cetera, to train the entire body, that seems reasonable. At some point, the bench press becomes less sort of a useful movement, not only because you can't do it enough in the context of Olympic weightlifting to like continue focusing on Olympic weightlifting, but also because you can't train the bench press enough to actually improve it. And so like, therefore, like, why are you doing it? It might be better off spending that time getting better at the push press, the press, the jerk, and things of that nature that are more specific to the sport, that because you're doing all of these accoutrements, if you will, or like movements that transfer well, not only to the movement you're training, but also vice versa, probably better spent training that. So yeah. I think we're in agreement, but we had to disagree for this uh, particular podcast series. All right. Are plant-based protein sources as uh, efficient for building muscle as animal sources? Now, the question says sufficient, but that doesn't really work. That's not a thing. So, I don't know. Are plant-based protein sources as efficient for building muscle as animal sources? I think if it's worded like that, then I have to respond in the negative, and efficiency would then boil down to, like, anabolic potential per gram of protein, in which case animal protein is clearly superior. The pro uh, not the problem, but then the, the actual like validity of this within the world is that, okay, are people actually eating too little protein and would it therefore benefit folks from a physical performance standpoint to shift their sources over to more animal sources? And I think in general, broadly speaking, the answer to that is no. And so just a lay of the land here, if people are consuming somewhere between 1.4 to 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day, I do not care where that protein comes from. Effectively, the dose is so high at that point, it doesn't really matter if they're getting it from plants or animals. If you take that down to like one gram per kilo body weight per day, things start to get a little more interesting. You're like, okay, I think you're leaving a little bit of strength, hypertrophy gain on the table, maybe a little bit of endurance adaptation. 
because you're not getting a sufficient dose of essential amino acids from the plant-based sources that are as efficient as the animal-based uh, sources. But in general, I probably wouldn't worry about it that much. I just would start to think about it. But if you lower that even further to like 0.6 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day, then I'd make an even stronger argument that animal sources uh, would, be, would be better. And so, yeah, if you're answering it from an efficiency standpoint, sure, animal uh, so, uh, protein sources are probably better for performance. But uh, if you raise the dose, like this sort of threshold level, I don't think it matters. Yeah, there's not really a ton of room for debate here because this one just has like an objectively correct answer. It's pretty much what I would have said on a, on, a, on a per gram basis. Yes, with the total dose consideration, things change. One thing I would emphasize or, or want to make the point on is that people, particularly in this scene, put way more emphasis on the role of dietary protein intake for these adaptations. They almost put it on the effectively like on the same level as not what I would Yeah, do. not even close. Um, the, the effects of training to generate these strength and hypertrophy adaptations that we're talking about is miles ahead of what you would get from, you know, increasing your dietary protein intake. So even when you said like the example, like I start to think about it at one gram, it's like, sure, it had like a fleeting thought in my brain. But if I looked at like, you know, is somebody who would, who would have squatted 500 pounds eating animal protein from their training program now going to be stuck at like 350 because they, no. they put absolutely not. Yeah. I think that that is very, very unlikely to be um, a, a particularly significant effect. So I care uh, even less about uh, the difference in these sources if somebody's eating a, re a reasonable dose. Um, and we can say a reasonable dose. 1.2 is, is like one that's commonly cited in like, you know, some of the, some of the, um, uh, the nutrition literature as far as like optimizing, getting the biggest you know, bang for your buck, you can, you know, give yourself an insurance policy by bumping it up a tiny bit more from that. But if you're worrying about that, if you're like, you know, doing an ultra low volume training program, but like slamming hundred gram protein shakes, I think your priorities are backwards. Yeah. Big time. There's actually an interesting study that I've quoted in a few of our uh, new uh, articles on the website. Um, these are individuals with chronic kidney disease who uh, engaged in resistance training. And uh, they were eating on average uh, just under 0.6 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day. And they saw a similar effect size in actual strength gained compared to those without chronic kidney disease who were eating more protein. Uh, and so they got substantially stronger. So it's not that you can't get stronger or whatever. It's just if you were making the argument, like, could you get even stronger by upping the protein dose? Sure. But I only care about it when it gets pretty low rather than like, I was 20 grams low on protein today. I'm like, that doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Is nutrition overrated for powerlifting performance? I guess it's <laughs> inadvertently put these questions back to back. Uh, yeah, kind of. Okay. <laughs> you think so? Point. I mean, I, again, as we've alluded to, have played and participated in multiple sports over the years. And I met and trained with and competed against and participated with so many people who were exceptional performers and um, I remember, I remember one guy that I, that I swam with and he was, he was like, he was like the, the, the Charlie Dixon of my, of my team okay. who would, you know, rip a absurdly fast hundred backstroke and then we'd go, you know, eat afterwards and he'd have a plate of French fries. And the, the you know, there's, uh, I think I saw some posts recently about like some NFL players who just like live on candy and stuff like that. And obviously these are like fringe cases, but I think that, um, I think that the, the, the physical training aspect is a bigger lever for the physical performance. Nutrition has a role, of course, um, and, and is there room for improvement um, in, in performance through certain nutritional interventions? I think that the degree to which that is even possible is going to vary by sport. I think different sports are going to have different potential for impact and improvement from performance. For example, particularly endurance, like in the endurance realm, I would say, oh yeah, you know, particularly as a, like ultra endurance activities and how you're going to fuel the actual event and stuff like that is like critically important. Um, otherwise, you're going to tap out and die early, whereas yeah. like doing a one RM squat is going to be a field. It's not limited by fuel utilization. So then the question is, is it going to be more limited by, uh, are my adaptations going to be limited mm -hmm. by nutritional considerations outside? And then I refer back to the last question, where it was like, to an extent at the extremes, but uh, less so compared with the actual training decisions. Yeah. All of this, just for clarity, is like separate from health considerations where nutrition is like super important for health. Yeah, so you said that nutrition is overrated, so I have to take that it's not overrated. I mean, yes, well, for powerlifting, okay, I, I guess if I would use uh, maybe nutrition availability as a proxy or, or like, like food environment as a proxy for like socioeconomic status, 
which then you could like associate to like opportunities to participate in sport. <laughs> like, you could take a weight class angle. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I, I think I have a hard time disagreeing outside of like what I would consider proxies for either opportunity to uh, participate and train uh, effectively uh, or uh, proxies for certain genetic predispositions. Because like when I view powerlifting performance and like the most important things, I'm thinking genetics, opportunity to participate, social sort of influences, uh, and nutrition ends up being like far, far lower down the rung because those three things are going to be far more predictive of how somebody does in the sport compared to what we would consider rather modest changes in the dietary pattern, whether it's a few hundred calories here and there, whether it's a shift in macronutrient allocation, whether it's dietary supplement um, things. I think you can make a stronger case again, like you mentioned, for like ultra endurance sports, um, really prolonged efforts. But in that, it's not just nutrient availability, but it's also tolerance. There are some people, like the Tour de France is called like an eating contest on wheels. But the uh, variation in what people actually consume during the stages varies widely. Some people can't do more than you know a couple hundred calories over the you know, span of that without getting an upset stomach, whereas other people can eat thousands of calories. And sort of you would want to be well set up to like not only tolerate that, don't get an upset stomach, but also have the nutrition available to you. I think you could make a stronger argument for prolonged uh, things like that. Um, otherwise, then I'd have to just go back to like maybe fluid availability, like if someone was really, really like hypovolemic or whatever. And yeah, so, so I think if you have to just strictly to powerlifting performance, the role of nutrition, it's going to have to center around body weight management in the short term setting, which can have a, a pretty substantial effect if somebody's cutting a lot, for example. Otherwise, I think it's, you know, fifth, sixth, seventh thing down the, down the ladder. Okay, last question. Are PEDs in strength sports always a net negative? This is an interesting question. I'm going to come at it from maybe a, a way that you might not have predicted. Okay. So I'm going to say no, PEDs are not always a net negative because I think there are uh, potential positive externalities from PED use in strength sports that for some individuals, uh, I don't know that this is the majority of individuals, but at least some outweigh these sort of health risks. So I think that's what you really have to drill down on. Like, what are the long-term health risks of PED use at a level that would actually improve performance. Um, and so, yeah, I think in general, from a health perspective, there's really no argument here um, that PED use is unlikely to be beneficial. It's more probable than not that significant use of performance-enhancing drugs have a negative effect on health long-term. However, if it puts more life in your years by affording you um, opportunities, uh, particularly a higher quality of life because you've amassed power and respect in a, a, a business. Uh, I think those things for some folks, it might be, you know, quote, worth the risk. That's a calculus that they're going to have to do on their own. But I think from a health perspective, it's pretty cut and dry. I do think that some of the health risks have been overstated due to lack of evidence on long-term outcomes. But I think the, in general, the medical community is very risk averse to this. They're like, well, we don't really know what's going to happen with prolonged use or high dosage uses. And so we have to just predict they're going to be worse than, than what we see or what we expect. Certainly a number of case reports out there kind of support that uh, coming at it from that angle. But outside of just the health effects alone, I think, again, if you ask somebody like, hey, uh, if, if would you take five years off your life if your earnings were going to be here and you had this standard of life? And some people... Uh, uh, I think it's called the Feldman paradox, or whatever. They would take they would take that trade off. Feldman, I, I don't know that it's his name, but I feel like it is. He was a journalist and a physician who actually asked athletes, like, would you take five years off your life uh, if you're going to win, or, or sorry, you're going to die in five years if you won everything in the interim? And like a substantial portion die of people. In five years versus take five years off your life. It was, it, it was something. It was something that, in fact, we talked about in the yeah. PED episode. Yeah. I forget yeah. the exact paradox offhand. It was pretty interesting. So I think that calculus kind of shakes out differently. So now you have to refer, uh, uh, respond in the affirmative. It's always a net. I mean, the always part of this question makes it, it, makes it a tough one <laughs> yeah, yeah. here. I think, and, and the other aspect is that like PED is not one thing. There's so many you know, different substances that might benefit in, in performance in different sports. If you wanted to characterize caffeine as a PED in one, uh, in, mm -hmm. in one task or activity, alcohol might be a PED in another one or a beta blocker in one versus you know, oxandrolone in another versus uh, EPO in another. So there's different risk and benefit profiles to, to each of these. I think there's, some, you know, I have some curiosity or interest around, because this didn't say strength sport, it just said PEDs for strength in general, as, as we've discussed before. Oh, yeah. Most people who use performance enhancing drugs actually are not like athletes. Um, they're just like people. And I also think about like in the medical context, in, in severe burn patients, mm -hmm. asynchepsia, stuff like that, 
Um, that's still an area I think of, of research, and definitely I've seen you know oxandrolone and stuff like that used clinically in the context of like severe burn patients and things like that. So there's, you know, at least you would think that uh, there cannot be an absolute always net negative if they're if they're using it clinically in that context to get people through such a severe si- situation. Um, and and so if I had to say it's always a net negative outside of those contexts in the context of like competitive sports, then I'm just really imposing my own values of saying that the potential for negative health consequences from high dose prolonged use, for example, of these things outweighs whatever glory you're going to get out of it. But then I'm like, who am I to tell you that, you know, totally uh, worth it to you, even though, you know, we're just, we always joke it's powerlifting, whatever yes. example, but, uh, you know, people need reasons to, uh, you know, exist, I suppose. And if that's, <laughs> if that's yours, then fine. Yeah. I just think in general, like you'd got to go into things with eyes wide open yeah. and know like, what are the risks? And if you don't know the extent of the risks, assume that they're much higher than you think they are. And then, uh, you know, without being able to characterize those and sort of weigh the risks and benefits, that's tough. And I think the problem is with the moral stigma around PED use right now, particularly in the United States and in sport, um, it's created this sort of like, uh, uh, you know, behind closed doors thing. People are trying to do this on their own without sort of medical oversight, without medical care, without any sort of knowledge on like what, what are the risks. And so that I think creates the very risky proposition of like, oh yeah, you could use these and, uh, you know, see what happens. It's like, nah, I don't think. You know, dark web forums or something like that. Yeah, you're on a forum with somebody who's anonymous or, you know, Vinny down at GNC. No offense to Vinny, you seem like a nice guy. It's like, I don't know that that's the best way to do things. And so, um, yeah, puts uh, people in this precarious position. So, all right, that's a wrap on episode 269 of the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Shout out to Dr. Austin Baraki for doing this. It's been great debates in fitness and in health. Episode three, thank you for your submissions. Let us know uh, what you thought in the comments below. Catch you guys next time here on the Barbell Medicine When everyone is on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration, and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner, empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 96% of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said. Done.